So we started learning, we started, the first class was about Noach, the story of Moshe and the flood right here. Then we learned about uh, Avram and Sarah and their travels. And then we learned about the, uh, the way they spread godliness around, that was in Parshas Vayera. And then we uh, learned of Chayasara, the, uh, the story of Rivka and how he, she married Yitzchak and the mitzvah of young, young girls and women to like Chavez candles. And this week we are continuing with the story of Yitzchak's children. The Torah continues telling us the story of Yitzchak's children. Yitzchak and Rivka did not have children for many years. And then after many years and many prayers, they gave, Rivka gave birth to twins. And as you know what the expression is, careful what you wish for. Because Rivka prayed and prayed and ended up getting a Yaakov and an Esav. So we are going to begin, we are going to be starting on page 104. So uh, just a quick, quick little background. So Yitzchak and Rivka, the second Jewish man and the second Jewish woman ever. So they don't have children for many years and they have these twins. And when she becomes pregnant, she doesn't know that she has twins. She just feels a terrible, terrible kicking. And it's hurting her. And she goes to consult uh, the uh, holy man, the, the Novi, the prophet, shame. And he says, don't worry about it. There's two babies and they're not one. And they are struggling with each other. And uh, that's why they keep on kicking. And don't worry, it's going to be okay. So what was the kicking? Every time she passed a holy place, Yaakov would get excited and start kicking. And every time she passed an unholy place, Esau would get excited and start kicking. And for a pregnant mother, that hurts! So, you know, careful what you wish for. So she's getting abused by her kids, and then they, give, they give, uh, get born. We're on page 104. They get born, and for the first 12, 13 years of their life, you don't see any difference between them except their external appearance. Yaakov has dark hair, and he's quiet, and he's a scholar. And Esav, and Esav has red hair, and he is violent, and he's a hunter. But uh, other than that, uh, they're pretty uh, similar in their morality. And then at the age of 13, things, got, things went south. Now, the Torah tells us that Rivka loved Yaakov, and Yitzchak loved Esav. Rivka loved her quiet, scholarly son, Yaakov, and Esav loved their rowdy, rambunctious, mischievous son, Esav. And to some degree, Yitzchak was not aware of the depth of Esav's misbehavior. Torah tells us Esav was a murderer, Esav was a rapist, Esav was a thief, Esav was a thoroughly bad man. And Yitzchak, to some degree, was not aware of it. And Yitzchak loved Esav to the last day. And Yitzchak was aware to some degree of his, of, of his son's misbehavior, but not to, the full, not to the full extent. And therefore he loved him and prayed for him and tried to bring him back and tried to bring him close and tried to do everything to, uh, to put Esav back on the straight and narrow. And it all comes to a head in this story. Page 104. Already? <laughs> sure, go ahead. I'm curious, um, because the differences were not uh, seen 
13? Yeah. Is that why uh, there's a that's one of the back. That's one of the yeah. historical supports for 13. Oh, okay. For 13 being the age of Bar Mitzvah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Oh, cool. So, the truth is that uh, you see the same thing nowadays, you know, when the hormones kick in, then you see different, different personalities mm-hmm. emerge, and that Bar Mitzvah, is li- the spiritual maturity, is lines up with the physical maturity, or the physical um, maturation process. I don't know if there's maturity at 13, but whatever. All right, here we go. Va'yehi kizaken Yitzchak. It came to pass that as Yitzchak grew old, made ot. His eyes grew dim. He called his older son Esav. And he says to him, My son. And Esav says to him, Here I am, father. And Esav says to his father, Hineini. Hineini is used in the Torah as an expression that righteous people say when they are summoned to serve others. God or others, they say, Hineini, here I am, at your service. The only time we find somebody who is not righteous using that expression is Esav, who says to his father, Hineini, here I am. Why? Because Esav was a, a great actor who wanted to deceive his father, he wanted his father to love him, and he wanted his father to like him, and therefore around his father he would act righteous, but when, when, as soon as his father turned his back, he would go to his, to his evil ways. So, he says, so his father says to him, my son, and he says, here I am. Now, what did Yitzchak want from his son? He wanted his son to go bring him supper. Why? Because it was Pesach. And the, the, our, our ancestors, the forefathers, kept the Yom Tevim. They kept the holidays, even though the Torah wasn't given yet. But they, they had, the God had taught them the Torah, although He had not yet given the Jews the Torah. But they, they knew that it was Pesach. In fact, it was Yitzchak's birthday. Yitzchak's birthday was on Pesach. How do you know that Yitzchak's birthday is on Pesach? Because Yitzchak was born a year after the angels came to visit Abraham. They told Abraham and Sarah, and a year from now, you're going to have a baby. And what day did they visit Avraham? Did they visit Avraham and Sarah? On Pesach! So that means that uh, the, the, ble- the promise to, for that Yitzchak would be born to Avram and Sarah in their old age was on Pesach. His birthday is on Pesach. And now it's Pesach. And it's his birthday. And, it, and uh, he is about a hundred and something years old. And he can't, almost can't see anything. And he calls his son Esav and he says, come here, my, come here my beautiful, lovely son, heart of gold. Go get me some food. Bring it here. So because I want to give you my blessings. My blessings, capital B. He was giving his children blessings all his life, but this was going to be the pivotal blessing. Whoever would get this blessing would have the upper hand in history. So, Spiritual empowerment. So does um, um, uh, the other song, uh, Yaakov. Yaakov, does he know uh, that the big blessing is coming at this point? No, Yaakov was, so to speak, very, um, very Excellent. naive. He didn't get involved in politics. He didn't know what was going on. But his mother, his uh, mother mom, did. Yeah. And his mother interfered in the process. And that's a very famous story in the Torah. How his mother went and told her younger son, Yaakov, Hey, we cannot allow this to happen. And so we have to trick the blessings out of dad. And Yaakov was extremely hesitant. And it's a whole long story. But the bottom line is that they tricked their father, his father by putting on Esau's Garments, and then his father was groping to see who it is because he couldn't see. He felt Esav's furry coat and said, "Okay, I'm going to give you the blessing," thinking that it's Esav. 
So actually, the fact that he was blind or nearly blind is the reason why he did not end up giving the blessings to Esau, instead giving it to Yaakov. So that's the story. That's where the Yaakov got the blessings. That's where the Jewish people got the upper hand in history, the spiritual empowerment to make the world a better place and not a worse place. And that's why, despite everything and through everything, including what happened today in Israel, we survive and we overcome. And we will always overcome because of the blessing that Yitzchak gave Yaakov. And that wouldn't have happened if Yaakov, if, if uh, Esau would have gotten the blessings. So, so uh, now look to page 105. Rashi, when he's commenting on the fact that Yitzchak was nearly blind, Rashi provides three explanations. First explanation is, how did Yitzchak become blind? What made him become blind? You could say old age, but the Torah had just previously said that God blessed Yitzchak with the greatest blessings. And therefore, it's illogical to say that he, that he was sick and infirm and, and, and blind. He got all these blessings. That means that God blessed him that he should be healthy first and foremost. So why is he blind? When, or almost blind? When did God bless him? Right before that. Literally right before that. So Rashi says, he became blind. First of all, how did he become blind? He became blind when he was on the altar and his father was about to sacrifice him. The angels in heaven were crying and their tears fell into his eyes and eventually blinded him. That's explanation number one. Explanation number two. His daughters-in-law, Esau's wives who were idol, idol worshippers, were constantly burning incense for their, for their fake gods, and that incense blinded Yitzchak. So Rashi gives two explanations about how Yitzchak got blind, and then, he, and then he gives a third explanation, but not how he got blind, but why he got blind. And that is on top of page 105. Text number two. Why did, Yaakov, why did Yitzchak deserve to be blind? So that Jacob could get the blessings. In other words, whatever caused him to be blind, God orchestrated it so that, Yitz, so that Yaakov could get the blessings. Now, the reason why Rashi has to give all these answers instead of just giving one explanation is because each one of them has a weakness. For example, the one about the angels crying into his eyes, it's problematic because how old was Yitzhak when that happened? 37. He was 37 and here he's already over 100. So what was it, a delayed reaction? A hundred years later? All right, whatever, okay. Well, it's like asbestos, you know. When you yeah, 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 yeah. I'd say that. The second explanation of the fact that, it was, that, uh, that the uh, incense smoke made him blind, well, then why didn't it make Rivka blind, his wife? You don't find that Rivka was blinded by it. Well, and plus, they didn't live in the same house. <laughs> they didn't live in the same house with his, with his son. Yitzchak, the Torah says, was a multi-millionaire. Yitzhak did not live in the same house with Esau and his, and his wives. So that's problematic too. The third explanation is that it was so that Yaakov could get the, the um, blessings. But that doesn't explain how he got blind. It just explains why. So I want to inter- make a parenthesis here for one second and tell you something very beautiful that I heard once from my dad, from my father. He said this idea that the angels cried and their tears fell into Yaakov's eyes and he became blind, right? Mm -hmm. He said, children who are struggling cause their parents to cry. 
children who are struggling cause their parents heartbreak. And their parents cry. The parents have to be careful not to cry into their children's eyes because it can cause lifelong damage. Interesting? Cry into your children's eyes means if, you, if your children are hurting you and you're crying about it, cry in private. In public, keep a, keep a brave face and show yourself optimistic and you have faith in them and that they are not discouraging you and that you're not giving up on them that you have no negative thoughts about them, and that you have every faith in them, and that they're going to overcome it. The idea of weeping over a child, you're killing me, you're killing me, you're killing me, Larry. It feels good, but doesn't do anything good for the kid. It's called crying into the child's eyes. The angels were weeping when they saw that Yitzchak was going to be sacrificed, and that you think, oh, it's a good thing, you're showing Yitzchak how much you love him. But you cried right into his eyes, and it caused him later in his life to be blind. That was just a parenthesis, that, ch- that parents, children, need happy parents. Children need strong parents. Children need optimistic parents. And parents who don't lose faith in the ch- children, whatever the children do, as we, studied, as we learned last week. So therefore, not that anybody's expected to be Superman, but in front of your children, show a, a, show of, a, a show of faith. So that today, we're only going to focus on this last reason. The idea that he was blind so that his son Yaakov could get the blessings. Why? Why in the world so that Yaakov could get the blessings does Yitzchak have to be blind? Yitzchak lived another 57 years after this story. So he suffers 57 years of isolation and being homebound and all the other blessings that come along with being vision impaired. 57 years for one moment why does Yitzhak deserve that, first of all? And second of all, much more obvious question. Is there, does God have no other way to orchestrate that Yaakov should get the blessings other than that Yitzhak should be blind? A much better idea. Yitzhak doesn't realize the extent of Esau's evil. Okay, tell him. Let God talk to Yitzhak. You talk to Yitzhak all the time. In one of the conversations, let it come up. And let God say to Yitzchak, by the way, I know you plan on giving the brachas to Esau. Don't do it. He's not, he's evil, and he will always be evil, and you're not going to turn him around. Don't do it. I'm telling you this because I care about you, and I don't want you to waste your blessings. Go ahead, tell him. No, Yitzchak has to go blind, or almost blind, for 60 last years of his life, so that he doesn't give the brachas to Esau. So the Rebbe says, the Rebbe said, if I bring in, can you believe how badly God does not want to speak Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara, that God doesn't want to speak badly about Esau. Esau was a terrible guy. He was not some kind of an innocent, sweet guy that God doesn't want to, doesn't want to gossip about to his own father, for his own good. And yet God does not want to speak Lashon Hara. He doesn't want to speak slander Esau to say bad things about him behind his back to tell Yitzhak that Esau is a bad guy. So instead, God arranges that Yitzhak shouldn't see and that's how Yaakov will get the blessings and let Yitzhak go to the grave thinking that his son Esau is, uh, that there's hope for Esau. As we see in text number three, let's look at text number three. From here we learn how carefully we must avoid malicious speech. Yitzchak was confined to his home for 57 years just 
so that ill would not be spoken of a Jew and an apostate Jew. Esav was an apostate Jew. We'll talk about that in one second. If this applies to Esav, it most certainly applies to all of us Jews after the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. Right? We are post-Sinai. Esav was pre-Sinai. Sinai was a turning point in the history of the Jewish people. It was the birth of the official Jewish people. And at that time, God said, I am God, your God, individually, to each person there. Telling each individual Jew that I, God, am yours. I am the source of your individual strength and vitality. So therefore, to speak about a fellow Jew today, unthinkable. Imagine, Esau was considered a Jew, as opposed to his uncle Yishmael, who was not considered a Jew. Why? Because uh, his mom wasn't Jewish. But boom, your tuition dollars are at work. <laughs> because his mom was not Jewish. <laughs> His mom, Yishmael's mom, was Hagar, who wasn't Jew, wasn't a Jew. But who was Esau's mother? Rivka, same mother as Yaakov. So he was a Jew. Now, it wasn't the same status of Judaism the way we have it post-Sinai, because post-Sinai, it's much more black and white. Before Sinai, it was a matter of, did you adopt the Jewish faith in one God and the Jewish traditions? And, uh, and Hagar did not, did not, and Rivka obviously did. So yeah, therefore, Esau, with all of his terribleness, was a terrible Jew. My father was once asked, how come sometimes people fight and they stay friends, and sometimes people fight and they become enemies? So he said, because you have to learn how to call somebody apicorus. You know what apicorus is? Apicorus means, uh, you know, uh, an atheist, uh, someone who's uh, apostate, someone who's uh, going against God. When Jews argue with each other, they always go to the extreme. You know, it's not like you're wrong. You're an apicorus. <laughs> you're not just wrong. You're dead wrong. But apicorus is a noun. It means like a real, a real um, bad guy. So my father so says... Is that, huh? is that bad in regards to belief in God? Yeah. Apicorus so means that you're going against God. Like no, and it's worse than... It's not... Oh. It's like it's not, it's someone who believes in God and is going against God. Hmm. Heretic is the word. A heretic. Hmm. So my father said, some people know the art of saying you are a heretic, but you are my heretic. <laughs> and that's why they can argue and they can still get along because although you may be a heretic and you are a heretic and you're a rat but you're my rat and I love you <laughs> and I never had a rat like you that feeling that you belong to me it's a beautiful thing so Esau with all of his terribleness he was a, he was a Yisrael Mumar he was an apostate but he was he was mine. He was, uh, he was Rivka's father. He was Yitzchak's father. And Yitzchak wanted to make him better. And yet, uh, huh? I would say, how, how does this concept apply to like other Jews who did get, you know, like Korach or some of the other Jews who get destroyed by the Jewish people later in history? Or non-Jews, right? Like the, the, the Philistines or people who yeah. you know, we, we remember every day. They're, they're bad. What do you mean? How does the idea that God wouldn't gossip about them? Right, God, yeah, I guess. Like, what changes that God's willing to say? Like, hey, you know, these people are bad. This, this is a question that I was thinking about when I was, when I was preparing this class, when I learned it in the first time. And it's, it, w- it would probably fill a full book. Like, how to distinguish between each story about why God would, would reveal someone's evil in certain cases. Um, the bottom line is going to be self-defense in almost every case. But even that we're going to address in this class, self-defense, not that simple. Because this case of Yitzchak and, and Esau is really a case of self-defense. Defending Yitzchak from Esau's evil. And yet God doesn't want to talk about it. Why did he select the evil 
Huh? Why did God select the evil one? Yeah, Yitzhak selected the evil yeah, one. Well, the father. Yeah, the father God, wanted God, to bless the evil one. It's a story that shows, it shows you know, there's, there's a, a lesson to be learned. So, but why did he pick the one who knew was damaged? The, why did the dad pick yeah, the one? Because he, he was trying to help him. He thought he needed the blessings more. Well, he thought the blessing, that it... The blessing came along with property and all kinds of... It would, it would come along with physical greatness, yeah. but he thought that if Esau gets these blessings, it'll turn him around. Mm. God knew that it wouldn't turn him around. But God wouldn't tell Yitzhak that. Why wouldn't he? Because you're not a speaker of this, this, in general, touches on a different issue, which is that God is not a hypocrite. What he tells us to do, it's because he does it. As we, as we say in the everyday in the Shacharit, Magid Devarav Liyakov, Chukavu Mishpatav, God tells us, what he does, and invites us to do it with him. So when God says to us, for example, don't eat pork, it's because God doesn't eat pork. If you're going to ask, what does it mean that God doesn't eat pork, then it's going to be a whole discussion about what does it mean that God eats, what is eating. But everything we do, we know that it's impossible to, to exist, if not for the fact that it existed first in God, because everything comes from God. So when God says, don't eat pork, that's a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. Whatever pork is in the, spiritual, in the spiritual form, God doesn't eat it. Whatever eating is in the spiritual form. So God doesn't like pork. So he says to us, come do the mitzvah with me. Every mitzvah is God inviting us to do the mitzvah with him. On sukkahs, God sits in a sukkah. And he says to us, hey, come sit in the sukkah with me. But there's never a case where God tells us to do something, but he doesn't have to do it because he's the boss. That kind of hypocrisy doesn't exist. So when, when God says, do not gossip, God is obviously doesn't gossip. And when he makes it a rule in the Torah, he's not allowed to gossip. Yeah. Is it only gossiping, like not gossiping about Jews or everybody? No, people. All people, especially about Jews, because they're our family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just going to ask a question about the blindness, because you brought it up. Yeah. Why was he blind? Is there another analogy, another mm-hmm. potential reason to keep him blind 50 some odd years beyond this and because he was blind to who the blessing was supposed to go to and maybe he was going to learn more from his senses going forward in life. But this would would correct his error of judgment? Maybe. Maybe. I don't like to to, uh, I don't like to assign these kind of flaws to those kind of uh, high-ranking people in the Torah, because I don't want to start up with them. So when we say that Yitzchak made an error, I don't want to say that, because... He's misguided. I don't want to say that either. I don't want to say anything like that. When we say that Yitzchak knew what he was doing, and God wanted him to do something else. Yitzchak was trying to do something good, and God wanted him to do something else good. But what, one thing is for sure that God, that the, the, the Rebbe taught us many times, is that when you see a righteous person being taught a very harsh lesson in the Torah, like this one, for example... Nine times out of ten, it's so it's because we are supposed to learn a lesson from it. The lesson being that Yitzchak would rather be blind for fifty-seven years than hear gossip about about somebody, especially his own kid. And God would rather have Yitzchak be blind for fifty-seven years than to speak gossip about somebody. And the point of why he has to be blind for fifty-seven years so the next time we are tempted to, to gossip, we would say, "Hey." Yitzchak would rather be blind for seven years and not gossip. You know, let's, let's shut her down. <laughs> let's shut her down. Yeah. Um, I, basically, God had already 
you know, he promised uh, Abraham to have, uh, a, you know, this great nation which uh, would be arising. So he had to intervene to protect, uh, you know, uh, the promise okay. to Abraham. Okay, very good. This is how he did it. Yeah. This is how he did it. All right, so let's move along. Let's talk for a moment about this idea of Lashon Hara. It's an old story, I'm sure you've all heard it, but just in case. It's an old story about, about a bunch of, a, gr- a group of the Baal Shem Tov's Hasidim who were summoned by the Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov was the founder of Hasidism. And he summoned them and he said, I want you to go take a trip to this and this village. Go, and go to the inn and sit there for a little while and then come back. So the Baal Shem Tov would do this often. They, didn't, they weren't confused by it. And they went. They come to the inn, they sit down, they order food, and they start chatting. And then they hear an old Jew sitting next to the oven. He says to them, my fellow Jews, are you as careful with what comes out of your mouth as you are with what goes into your mouth? Because they had been grilling the innkeeper, who, 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 who's the kashrut, and who's, who supervised the food, and who is the shochet, and who, who, who want to make sure that it's kosher. So he said to them, it's very good that you're being careful about what goes in your mouth, and now you should try to be that careful about what comes out of your mouth because they were chatting and maybe there was some Lashon Har going on. So let's talk for a moment about Lashon Har. There is a, a text here that they have from Jonathan Sachs, but we always run out of time, so I'm going to let you read that yourself if you wish. And let's go to the bottom of page, top of page 107. Page 107. In other words, the, the, this text that we're going to read now is going to give us a deeper appreciation for what exactly is the crime of Lashon Hara, and why is it so bad to gossip? The Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shneur Zalman of Liadi, the, which is the uh, about the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, the Balatanya, he offered an insight into the pasuk that says, the pasuk says, "Lo tashet yadcha im rasha, do not accept a false report." A false report refers to malicious speech, Lashon Hara. And the rest of the, of the verse there says, and do not place your hand with a wicked person to be a violent witness. So let me first explain the simple meaning of the verse, and then we'll go into it with al how he interpreted it. It simply means do not lie on the witness stand. Because if you lie on the witness stand in support of a false claimant, a person who is a plaintiff and is lying, and you're testifying on his behalf, so the person who is bringing the false claim is a violent, is a violent, is a wicked person, and you who are testifying for him are a violent witness because you are hurting the defendant who doesn't deserve to be a defendant. So that's the simple meaning of the verse, don't lie under oath as a, te- as the, as a witness. The Altadeb explained it to mean, don't gossip about people. Why? Who is the wicked person that you are? Uh, placing your hand with, your own evil inclination, your own Yetzirah is the one who is having these not unkind thoughts about somebody else. And that's bad enough. But when you give it verbiage, when you verbalize it and you talk about it, now you are like being the witness for a person who's making a false claim. And it's a violent crime, as Dr. Rebbe explained. Dr. Rebbe shared what he heard from his teacher, the Magid, in the name of the Baal Shem Tov. In addition to our weaknesses, we each receive a special strength from God when our soul comes down to earth. And when two witnesses testify to actions that we committed under the influence of our weaknesses, our strength is removed 
And that is a form of violence. You hear this? The Al-Tadebbe explained that when someone says something bad about you, it weakens you. You may not even know that the person said it. You may be at the other end of the, of the earth. Someone in the world said something bad about you, spoke badly about you, and it weakens your ability to overcome the weaknesses that you have. Because God gives everybody weaknesses, right? Everybody is born with strengths and weaknesses. And those weaknesses need to be fought. It is a lifelong battle for every person, and each person is expected to fight the good fight against his or her own weaknesses. But the strength to fight is diminished when somebody says something bad about me. And it's not my fault. Well, it's not my fault. And yet that's the way it is. When someone speaks bad about you, it impacts you. And that's why the Talmud says that when you speak Lashon Hara, it hurts you because you're sinning. It hurts the person who's listening to you because they're enabling you. And it hurts the person that is being spoken about. And everybody wants to know, what do you mean it hurts the person that's being spoken about? That's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. And that's why you're not allowed to speak Lashon Hara. It's not fear that a person should suffer because two people are talking about him somewhere, about, about his weaknesses, and, and emphasizing his weaknesses, and stressing his weaknesses, and celebrating his weaknesses. It makes my weaknesses even weaker. So, it, it, so it's very possible that one of the reasons why one day I feel myself weaker and less enthusiastic about, about doing the right thing is because somewhere in the world somebody said something bad about me. This is by no means an excuse. It's not a, it's not a, a, a license to kill. No one is allowed to say to the judge, someone spoke question horror about me and that's why I did it. Not gonna work, not gonna fly. But it's just, it's an amazing insight into the reality of life that one of the reasons why you might find yourself having a bigger struggle in a moment is because somebody spoke Lashon Hara about you. And, to, and it's good to know that so that next time you want to speak Lashon Hara about somebody, know that it is not just, you know, you know just fun, carefree. You know, okay, you're being naughty, but it's not hurting anybody. It is hurting somebody. So sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Yeah, that's true, maybe if you're talking to the person's face. But if you're talking about the person, you absolutely could hurt them. That's what Al Tadebbe adds to the conversation here. Hashem created the world in speech. Yeah. And therefore, that ability to create in speech was also inherited by, by us. Yeah. So if we say something, it's, it's going to create something at a different level. Yeah. Hashem, of course, is not creating something from nothing, it's creating something from something. We're enhancing a reality by, by pronouncing, by saying it. So if somebody has a weakness, then we are reinforcing that. Exactly. And that's, by the way, what, uh, what Dr. Rabbi Sachs says over here. When you look at it, he says that the reason why God created speech was because speech has the power to connect things, just like creation, like you said. Speech has the power to connect things, connect people to each other, to bring people close with positive talk. And therefore, when speech is used negatively, it destroys things. Yeah. I know that you wanted to skip 4A. Yeah. I just I read it myself. 4A applies to today in our nation. Yeah, I know. That's why I wanted to skip it. So I didn't want to get into politics. <laughs> no, but it's true. It's true. Well, I'm taking that and I'm going to... Yes, use it in good health. Good. All right. Page 108. The Torah says, 
Do not walk about as a peddler among your people. You shall not stand by the shedding of your fellow's blood. I am your God. Gossip mongers are, among, are called peddlers because those who instigate quarrels and spread gossip visit the homes of friends for the purpose of seeing or hearing something negative and then be able to go and share it with other people. Also known as... Uh, what's that? The, all the gossip magazines and all the gossip channels and all the they go around TMZ they go around snooping 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 to get a cat to get a, to get something uh, something uh, tasty that they can go then go and tell everybody and therefore people who are gossip mongers are called peddlers just like a peddler takes his wares and goes around and says who wants this the gossip mongers literally go they look for customers who's interested in a good who's interested in a juicy Juicy piece of gossip. They're called peddlers of gossip. Who is a gossiper, says on page 109? One who collects information and goes from person to person saying, hey, this is what so-and-so said, or this is what I heard about so-and-so. Even if the statements are true, they can destroy the whole world. This is the Maimonides' words, the Rambam's words. This is, there is a much more sin than gossip, which is also included in this prohibition, which is Lashon Hara, sharing deprecating facts about a colleague, even if they are true. So going around spreading false rumors is bad enough, uh, but is bad. And then Lashon Hara, even if it's true, is just as bad, because as we said, it, it makes the person who is struggling to have an even more difficult, to have an even more difficult struggle. Is there a, a level of uh, speech uh, which is the highest level of speech? Yeah, we're going to get into that. Positive speech we'll get into later. Okay. We're going to get there. For now, we have to get into the nitty-gritty of what exactly is considered gossip because it's not that simple. It's not that simple. There are times when you think that what you're saying is no problem and actually it is a problem. So let's look in the Talmud and see something surprising. This is from the Talmud Baba Batra, page 164. A tied document was brought before Rabbi Yehuda. One of the great rabbis of the Talmud, Rabbi Yehuda, examined it and he said, this document is missing a date. So his son, who was standing there, Rabbi Shimon, said, maybe the date is hidden between the ties and the folds of the paper. Rabbi Yehuda untied the document and found the date where his son had predicted it would be. Later, Rabbi Yehuda looked disapprovingly upon his son, Rabbi Shimon, for writing a tied document. You're not supposed to tie the document because it makes folds, and the folds can hide important information. So Reb Shimon defended himself, and he said, no, Dad, I didn't write it. Reb Yehuda Chayata wrote it. And his father said, hey, don't speak Lashon Har. So here you have a case of a guy who's defending himself. He's defending himself and saying, what you're accusing me of, I didn't do. Reb Yehuda Chayata did it. And his father said, defending yourself is not, is not an excuse for Lashon Hara. You had no reason to say you did it. All you had to do was to say that you didn't do it. If you wanted me to know that you were innocent, all you had to do was say you didn't do it. But to say who did it, you, didn't have to, you did not have to say that. So here, the reason that this is, this is so different is because there's nothing malicious over here. And that's the big deal. Lashon Hara usually we say is malicious. person goes around and gossips and slanders and, and, and talks about people. And, uh, and it's all because he enjoys gossiping. Reb Shimon over here was not enjoying gossiping. In fact, he wasn't gossiping. He was simply defending himself, thinking that it's no big deal to tell his father that it wasn't him, it was somebody else. And his father said no. Although there's no evil intent, and although it's not malicious, and so on and so forth, it's still Ashenar. 
Another example. Reb Yehuda was sitting giving a class. He smelled the odor of garlic. He was very sensitive to the odor of garlic. Of course, who's not? And he said, whoever ate garlic, please step out. I can't continue. So Reb Chia rose and left. Out of respect to Reb Chia, everyone left. The next morning, Reb Shimon, the son of Reb Yehuda, said to Reb Chia, you really ate garlic? I guess I got, we'll learn from this story that there was a sensibility back then that when you come to a group, especially a group with, which is being taught by an by a elderly, sensitive person, you should uh, brush your teeth before you come. <laughs> and definitely don't eat garlic before you come. So he said to Reb Chia, you ate garlic? I don't believe that. I don't believe it. So Reb Chia said, Reb Chia said, there should be no such behavior among the Jewish people. Meaning, of course I didn't. God forbid no one should do that. It's hard enough to learn Torah as it is. You want to make people uncomfortable when they're, when they're learning. I wouldn't do that. I mean, in other words, he did not. So then why did he stand up and leave the classroom? Because he knew that if he doesn't jump up and leave the classroom, someone who's guilty is going to get up and be embarrassed and is going to have to leave the classroom. And so there's this also a little tiny form of over-the-top Lashon um, Hara where he thought, if I, if I don't stand up, then I'm guilty of, of exposing somebody else, and I don't want to expose anybody else. Therefore, you guys know the famous story about a kid. I don't know, I can't remember any names. The kid met his teacher from 30 years ago, and he says to his teacher, you know, I never got a chance to thank you. Teacher says, for what? You remember the story? Watch. Teacher says, for what? He says, when I was a young kid in your class, a watch went missing, one of the kids' watch was oh, stolen, yeah. right? And, uh, and you stood up and you said, okay, kids, here's what we're going to do. I want you all to stand up and I want you to face the blackboard. And I don't want nobody's going to look. And I want you to, I'm, everyone's going to close their eyes. No one's going to see anybody. And if you have the watch in your pocket and you want to return it, but you're embarrassed. So just take, the, take it out of your pocket, hold it behind your back. No one will know and I'll take it and I'll give it back to the owner. And nobody will know that you did it. And it's amnesty. So, so the teacher said, yeah, I remember that. What's it going to do with you? So the kid said, I'm the one. What do you mean? I'm the one who gave you the watch. You didn't know that? He goes, no, of course I didn't know that. I had my eyes closed. <laughs> the teacher also had his eyes closed. He didn't want to know who it was. Because why should he know who it was? What does that help? He just has to go back to the, to the owner. The Rebbe's wife, it's also a very similar story. The Rebbe's wife, Rebbe Tzenchaya Mushka, was walking along the, uh, the walkway behind the Rebbe's shul. She was coming from her house. And a yeshiva boy, who was in a gigantic rush to be on time to class, ran and ran around the corner and bumped into her. And um, he stu- he, 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 she turned away from him. And he apologized and he ran for his life because he just bumped into the Rebbe's wife and he was humiliated. I mean, he felt he was, he was uh, mortified. And later, he wrote a letter of apology to her. And so her aide brought her this letter and said that this yeshiva boy asked me to give this to you. And he, the, the aide didn't know who it was. It was, a, it was a, didn't know what it said. It was a sealed envelope. So the aide gave her the envelope. She opens it. She looks at it. And it was a, a letter of apology signed by the kid who bumped into her. And she said, ah, I purposely turned away so I didn't, shouldn't see who it was that bumped into me. And now he, he comes and he signs his name. And now I know who it was. I didn't want to know who it was. So, you know, you could say, I'm not speaking Lashon Hara, I'm not speaking maliciously. If you have the ability to prevent somebody from being exposed and you don't take it to a degree, that's also considered Lashon Hara. We find in the Gemara, as we're going to say now, that even God 
doesn't want to speak Lashon Hara, as we started off with Yitzchak. This is a story that when Moses passed away and Yeshua took over, Joshua took over, and took the Jewish people over the Jordan River into Israel, he started off by conquering the city of Jericho. And they were told that they should not take any spoils from the city of Jericho. The whole thing should be for God. The next city that they conquered was a city named Ai. Jericho was a slam dunk victory, like the first seven games of the Vikings football season. And then I was like last week's game. They got walloped. And Yeshua cried out to God after the war, and he says to God, what happened? I thought, you, I thought that you were uh, going to bless us and protect us and help us like you did with, what happened? Why did you abandon us and let us get, get, let us get killed like that? So the God said to him, calm down. The Jewish people have sinned, and someone took spoils from Jericho. When I said that they shouldn't. So Yoshua said, Who took spoils from Jericho? And God says in text number 8, Joshua said to God, Amar Who sinned? And God said, What am I, a gossiper? I'm going to tell you who sinned. You go figure it out. I'm not going to tell you. And God gave Yoshua a method with which to dis- de- determine, the f- to decipher who is the one who took it, who needs to be punished, that the Jews can get their merits back. But God says to Yeshua, why would you t- expect me? I should tell you who, who did it. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not a gossip. I'm not, I'm not a, 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 a gossiper, gossip monger. So, so here we have all these extreme examples to really drill the idea into our head that first of all, don't talk about people. That's first of all. Don't talk about people. That's the rule across the board. And then there are some exceptions. But the rule is, don't talk about people negatively. Don't talk about people to people that you know think negatively of them. Don't do anything that might compromise a person's reputation and so on. So even if it's not your fault, even if it's not malicious, even if you don't mean to speak Lashon Hara, just don't talk about people behind their back, especially if it's bad, and especially if it's to somebody that you know is going to think badly of them. Now the question is, what are the exceptions? And the reason why we're going into this is because why would it be gossip for God to tell Yitzchak that his son is, is, is evil if he's the protecting Yitzchak from blessing an evil boy? Why is that considered Lashnar? The Rebbe said that God doesn't want to tell Yitzchak that Esau is bad because God doesn't want to speak Lashnar and we should learn from there that we shouldn't speak Lashnar. But why would that be considered Lashnar? Imagine, imagine there's a guy who goes going around borrowing money from people Right? And then just blowing it in, in Vegas. And then, he, he, and then you find out that the next person he's going to is Ryan. For, you're not allowed to tell Ryan that that, guy's a, that that guy is a thief? Not only you, you, would, you, should you think, would you think that you would be allowed to tell him, you would think that you have to tell him. That it would be a mitzvah to tell him. So why, why is it, what's it different that God telling Yitzchak that Esau is about to come and swindle the blessings out of him? So let's continue now with these exceptions now. On the bottom of the page, text number nine. Let's take English on the next page. Whoever can save somebody else and fails to do so, transgresses the Torah's mitzvah of do not stand on your, by, by your, your, blood, your brother's blood. This applies when we learn that non-Jews or even Jews in, who are informing are conspiring to harm others or setting a trap for others and we don't notify them of the danger. 
It also applies when we know a Gentile or an aggressor who has a complaint against another and we can appease the aggressor on behalf of this other, but we fail to do so in all similar instances. So you see, there's a mitzvah to protect people. And in that case, to say, oh no, I'm not going to protect, I don't want to speak Lashon Hara. No, then it becomes a sin. You remember this? You remember there was, I, I saw this movie a long time ago, Les Miserables. And in Les Rab, Jean Valjean is running around and he hides in the home of a, of a man who hasn't lied for 80 years, 90 years, something like that. And the cops come and they say to the guy, is Jean Valjean hiding here? The guy has never told a lie in his life. Was it the priest? Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he says to the cop, nope, he's not here. If I'm not getting the story exactly correct, the point is correct. Yeah. <laughs> and the cops can't argue with him because everyone knows he's never told a lie. So the cops leave. And as soon as the cops leave, Jean Valjean comes out of hiding and the guy, the old man, is crying and saying, I lied! He's weeping. He told a lie. So I remember when I was a kid, I'm seeing this and I'm thinking to myself, on the one hand, it's wonderful. The guy's never told a lie and it hurts him to tell a lie. On the other hand, how could you cry that you just saved an innocent man's life? So you lied. This lie happened to be a mitzvah. Your personal piety can't be more important than the objective right and wrong. You know, like, like, a, like a person who says, oh, my wife is in labor and I got to drive her to the hospital on Shabbos, but I've never driven in my life. <laughs> I can't, today can't be the first time. Well, now driving on Shabbos is going to be a mitzvah. Like my father told that one guy, old Russian guy, who the doctor said, you cannot fast on Yom Kippur. Your health does not allow it. You can't fast Yom Kippur. So the old Russian man says to my father, I can't fast Yom Kippur. I fasted two days in a row when I was a partisan in the forest. I, I fasted on a day I thought was Yom Kippur. And then my friends told me I messed up and the next day is Yom Kippur. So I fasted two days and the doctor is going to tell me I can't fast one day. I'll fast one day. So my father says to him, no. The same God who you are serving by fasting, now you can serve him by eating, because it's a mitzvah to eat when the doctor says you have to eat. So don't get all hung up on your personal streak that you have going. You know, like a, like a, like a, like a baseball player who's got a streak, right? He's got a streak going, and then the guy tells him, you got to do a sacrifice, but that's what you got to do. But I got to hit a streak going. All right, now the great home run is a sacrifice bunt. So, he, so you say, oh, I didn't speak Lashon Hara, but I'm not going to speak Lashon Hara because I don't, I don't, I've never spoken Lashon Hara. Okay, but defending a person is not to speak Lashon Hara. Telling Ryan that a guy's going to rip him off is not Lashon Hara, it's a mitzvah. Text number 10a. But also, yes. I mean, there is something where there's. Um, People yeah. perceive reality in a different way. Yeah. And so that can attract, uh, you know, the, the boss, you know, lotion horror. Because if someone thinks in a different way, they, can, uh, they think they're saving, they're doing a mitzvah when they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a pitfall that you have to be careful of. But... Um, but, but right now, let's try and understand and explain why, why God and Yitzchak didn't want to exchange Lashon Hara in this situation. Because God wouldn't have done it to Yitzchak if he didn't believe that Yitzchak felt the same way. So the answer, oh my gosh, it's so late. This hour goes by so fast. 
The answer is basically is based on the concept that Hasidus is based on, which is, as Moshe would call it, lifnim mishurat hadin, beyond the letter of the law. Okay, we only have like four minutes left, so let me just summarize this for you. Hasidus, the Altarebbe, the Barshemtiv, really, truthfully, not even, they didn't even invent it, they just highlighted something that Pirkei Avot talks about and so on. A Jew, a person, should begin their life by learning the difference between right and wrong. Right? You spend your childhood years discerning between right and wrong, distinguishing between right and wrong. And when you're a child, you're always on the brink of doing something wrong. When you're a teenager, you're always on the brink of doing something wrong. And you're always fighting the fight to do right and not to do wrong. To choose good and not to choose evil. But when you grow up, as you grow up, your morality should grow up with you. And the morality of a five-year-old and a 15-year-old should not be the same kind of morality, moral struggle of a 50-year-old or a 100-year-old. What should be the difference? The difference should be that with enough training, with enough self-control, with enough, with enough practice at impulse control, and with enough self-mastery, you should come to a point where you are not always on the brink of doing something wrong. A child is always on the brink of doing something wrong. Every moment he's thinking about answering back to his parents, he's thinking about not listening to his mother, he's thinking about not doing his homework. You've got to grow up eventually and start coming to a point where you are not so subjugated to your, to your uh, what, what, do they, what do they call it, the, the worse, the lesser, uh, I don't remember, to our, to our evil inclination. You should not be so vulnerable to your evil inclination as when you're 50 as you were when you were five. At a certain point, your choice making has to be not between good and bad, but between good and better. So that even in your worst moments, in your weak moments, what you do is not as good as what you could have done. And that you are accountable for. Because you could have done better. Should, you know, as they say, you should know better. When I, was a, when I was like seven, and my brother, my older brother was like nine or ten, I used to fight with my younger brother a lot. And my older brother used to mix in, try to make peace. And uh, then it would become a three-way fight. <laughs> so my father, at one point, this, I, I, I was told the story, I don't remember it. So my father grabbed my older brother during one of these fights, and he spanked him. He was the one trying to make the peace, but it turned into a three-way fight. And my sister said to my father, why are you spanking him? Go after Ellie, he's the one making all the trouble. That was a big troublemaker. <laughs> so my father says to her, no, my older brother, he, he should know better. When I heard this, I was like, oh. Okay. <laughs> but that's what it is. That's what it is. When you're older, you're expected to know better, not to know good. Now you're expected to know better. He said, but how would I do? I did good. I tried to make. Yeah, but you should know even better. You should know better. 
So defending yourself by saying, what do you want from me? I, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Right. But you should know better. You should know how to do even better. So Hasidus want the, the Alter Rebbe with Tanya and everything, and the Rebbe with all of his Likudesiches and all of his teachings, he wanted to elevate a person from a place of good and evil to a place of good and better. So when we talk about Lashon Hara, yeah, you can always be in that place between slander and silence. If you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything. That's a terrible place to be. It's a fine place for a six-year-old to be. If you have nothing nice to say, shut your mouth. But for a 60-year-old, come on. Eventually, you start to, to drift intentionally into an area called beyond the letter of the law. So that what? So that if you ever slip, you don't go past the, the no-go zone. You just slip a little bit towards it. Remember when I, when I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, my teacher had a rule that if anybody said shut up, they were thrown out of class and you had to write, I will not use foul language in class 50 times. And I remember coming home to my mother, it's not such a bad word. I mean, I, knew, I, was, a, I was an expert, I knew the worst words. <laughs> you know, the four letter words and these words. What is he getting all upset about shut up? But if a kid said to another kid, shut up, throw him out of class. And this is a teacher that I loved. I still do. Because he drew the line for us way back. So that the idea of saying a four-letter word in his class, are you crazy? He gets mad at you if you say shut up. There's no way you would say anything worse than that. If you draw the line at the line, then in your, in your bad days, then you're going to go past the line. If you draw the line past it, then you're not going to go past the line. And furthermore, it's more, it's more worthy of you. It's more, it's more fitting for you to be wallowing in a world of light. And maybe you could have more light or less light, but never darkness. You should be far beyond that. So therefore, the, the, uh, could you say, God could have told Yitzchak that Esau was bad and it would not have been considered Lashon Hara. Yes, that's fine for mere mortals, but not for God and not for Yitzchak. For God and for Yitzchak, the line of Lashon Hara gets drawn way further. And even if you could excuse yourself, and even if you could come to the judge and say, as you know, in traffic court, guilty with an explanation. I'm guilty, but I didn't do anything wrong. Fine. That's okay if you're a beginner. But if you are Yitzchak, if you are God, you're not looking for excuses to speak Lashon Hara. You're not looking for permission to speak Lashon Hara. You don't want to speak it. And, and just like as in, in, uh, in literal Lashon Hara, as bad as it is to speak it, it's even worse to sit and listen to it. Because you're committing two sins. You are listening to Lashon Hara, and you are enabling somebody to speak Lashon Hara, and encouraging him to speak Lashon Hara, because you're giving him an audience. So Yitzchak doesn't want to hear the Lashon Hara, and God doesn't want to speak it. So the lesson from this story is not just don't speak Lashon Hara. The lesson from the story is don't want to speak Lashon Hara. If a person doesn't speak Lashon Hara, but is always bursting at the seams because he has something that he wants to say, and he's constantly controlling himself, it's no good. Yeah, the self-control is wonderful, but he is not in a good place. He's not in a good place. 
My great-grandfather, the one who I'm named after, his name is Eli, he was the previous Rebbe's personal secretary, and the, Rebbe, and the previous Rebbe called him Habal Sod Shali, my secret man, the one who knows how to keep secrets, because he was involved in many private meetings. The previous Rebbe had uh, multiple sclerosis and a stroke, and he was beat by the Soviets, and by the, by the time he uh, last five, six years of his life, most people couldn't understand when he spoke because his speech was slurred. So my great-grandfather would be present at people's private meetings with the Rebbe in order to interpret to, to people what the Rebbe was saying. And people had no problem. It was like he wasn't there because they knew the man is a steel trap. No one ever, ever gets anything out of him. So people were fine. So somebody once asked him, what's the difference between a person who knows how to keep a secret and a balsod? A secret, a secret man. He said the difference is that in a balsod, nobody knows you have a secret. A person who can keep a secret doesn't say what he's not supposed to say, but makes it just obvious enough that people know that he's got some information that you would want, but guess what? He's never going to tell it to you because he knows how to keep a secret. A balsod, much more than that. You would, from looking at him, talking to him, you would never guess that the man is harboring a secret. Never. It's like it doesn't exist. So there's no conversation. There's no pressure to reveal a secret because he doesn't look like a man who has a secret. So the, you, could, you could draw a parallel to a person who doesn't ever speak badly of others, but you can tell he wants to. <laughs> he has a lot to say about others, but he just doesn't say it, which for beginners is a tzaddik. Imagine a, a child like that, or a teenager like that, or a young adult like that, always, always in control of himself. But eventually, as the years go by, the desire to speak Lashon Hara should recede into the background. And the desire to speak positively of others, as, as you touched upon, when you speak positively of other people, it has the opposite effect of gossip. Gossip weakens people's resolve to overcome their own weaknesses. When you speak positively about someone, even if that someone is at the other end of the world and doesn't know that you're even speaking positively to, about them, it strengthens their resolve to overcome their weaknesses and it helps them to maximize and realize their good potential. So you, it's not just that you don't speak evil, you don't want to speak evil. And when you don't want to speak evil, you're not looking for excuses. God and Yitzchak were willing to, to, to uh, conspire that Yitzchak should be blind 57 years because they weren't looking for some dispensation to speak Lashon Hara even about a kid as bad as Esau. So that is our goal. Not to be the kind of people that always choose to do the right thing. That's good, that's, but that's basic. We want to go to a next level. We want to go to a level where the desire to do bad is in the background. Yes, it, it, it's never dead because we're not tzaddikim. We're not going to be a tzaddik. We're always going to be mere mortals. But, but still, the refined human being does not constantly struggle with darkness. A, health, a healthy, refined human being does not constantly struggle with darkness. The darkness takes a back seat and the struggle is between good and better. And that's why you find Jews who will always be doing a mitzvah beyond the letter of the law. So let's, I'm just going to finish with this because I know it's late. My father-in-law, Allah Vashalem, from the time I knew him, never ate meat, period. He never ate meat. And, I, and my wife told me, that, oh, my mother-in-law, he, ne- he hasn't eaten meat for 30 years. And why? Because he's worried 
about the source of the meat. Doesn't know who, who slaughtered the cow. He has no idea. It's not like in the olden days in the shtetl, you know, where everybody knew the shaykhit. Everybody knew who the shaykhit was and people would watch him do the shchita. Now it's big factories and it's a corporate. Who knows? He wouldn't eat meat. Even though it has an OU and has an OK and has a he doesn't want to do it. He didn't talk about it. He never told me that he doesn't do it. I had to hear from somebody else. He doesn't eat meat. So a person could say, it's fanatical. It's fanatical. God says, only eat meat that's slaughtered kosher. And, it, and, you, and you can rely on the certification that the meat is slaughtered kosher. Why aren't you eating it? People who love mitzvahs so much do not comply with mitzvahs. It's not compliance. It's love. Compliance is when you resent the order, but you comply. You comply with the water district. You comply with the highway patrol. You comply with the IRS. You don't comply with God. You know what what I'm saying, the difference? With God, it's love. You don't comply with your wife. Children shouldn't comply, be in compliance with their parents. It should be love. So if, if if you're... loved one asks you for some, something or to not do something, you shouldn't constantly be bursting with a desire to do it and yet not do it. Although that's minimum. It should be far beyond that. And that's what we learn from Yitzchak and from God. Lashon Hara is a destructive thing, it's a terrible thing. It, it ruins relationships, it ruins the world. But we, we should work on ourselves to come to a point where Lashon Hara is not just something we don't say, it's something we don't even, we don't even have a desire to say. We have a desire to see the good in people. We have a desire to hear good about people. When you feel that your fellow Jew is your, is your brother or your sister, then you know what it feels like. You don't want to hear bad news about your sister. You don't want to hear something awful about your brother. And if people tell it to you, your mind automatically goes into denial mode. Can't be. Can't be. What do you mean can't be? I saw it. You must have seen wrong. My brother couldn't do that. If we would feel that way about ourselves, about each other, then the desire to, to gossip, forget about it. We have a desire to, to find something good. That's the burning desire. To always find something good. Not the burning desire to gossip that we have to, con- to control. L'chaim, everybody, thank you very much for coming. Have a good night.